Are you a venture capitalist, family office, or about to launch your own angel syndicate? Then this week's sponsor could be your next trusted partner. This episode was produced in cooperation with Leva, the leading platform in Switzerland to set up and manage your SPVs and syndicate your deal flow. Leva allows you to set up SPVs from your computer in just five minutes, starting from as little as 1,000 Swiss francs. As you know, Swisspreneur runs its own syndicate, and we've been using Leva since our first deal. We couldn't be happier with them. If you're currently setting up your syndicate or structuring your clock deal, we recommend you to check out their website, www.leva.pe. That's L-E-V-A dot P-E. And contact the team for a quick demo. The best startup ideas sound absolutely ridiculous. If you think through them structurally and, and, and point by point, you can actually think of a path of all of this working out and making a lot of sense. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Hey, Alex, uh, very well, welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. Thank you so much for joining us from San Francisco today. Thank you so much for having me. You're the co-founder and CEO at WorldCoin, a new decentralized global currency that will be distributed fairly to as many people as possible. Before we talk about this very ambitious and fascinating project, I actually want to start with your personal background. You studied physics and mechanical engineering at university. And despite starting to write your master thesis on your bachelor's sixth semester, actually, you then ended up dropping out of your master's. Why did you decide to do so? Um, because I met my co-founder for Rollcoin, which is a very, he's a very famous figure here in Silicon Valley. His name is Sam Altman. And so basically I started studying in Germany. So I did, I did a, uh, I did two undergrads at the same time. So as, as you said, mechanical industrial engineering and, and physics. And then I started going into the direction of theoretical physics and more specifically how to use AI to predict quantum systems so and that's was like back then it's still like actually right now today i'm literally today i'm publishing a paper on this topic so i'm still i'm still working in that field a few hours a week but it's uh so this was this was that and then i um then i went to los angeles to caltech um to kind of continue writing my master thesis and and hopefully at some point do a phd this was the idea uh, but then basically Sam reached out and told me about the company Rollcoin and I, back then it sounded like a hobby project. I was like, okay, let's, let's give it a, let's give it a try. But then after a few months, it became quite serious quite quickly. Yeah. And then you had to make a decision. I assume, was that an easy one for you to say, I stopped my master's and just jump right into this venture? It was, it was quite easy at that point because I, um, I always knew I wanted to do uh, kind of startups. I always wanted to go to San Francisco and it's uh, kind of if I would have a time capsule, if I could just stop time and do whatever I enjoy the most, I would probably do research because it's mm -hmm. just, it's like so much fun. It's just cool. It's every day is somewhat exciting and, and, and cool while being a CEO is just really, really hard and it's also fun, but it's just much, much harder and much more draining. But uh, I don't. So uh, that's that's why I'm here. 
And you said you always knew that you wanted to go to San Francisco, that you wanted to have your own company. Where does that entrepreneurial drive come from? Did you have any role models that inspired you to go down that path? My father, I think, played a big role, certainly. He uh, he started a company, um, He like, but, but also most importantly interacts with many many entrepreneurs so like I, quite early on this became a normal part right which is not the case for for most people growing up in germany that kind of entrepreneurship or starting companies is a normal thing it's always a little bit outsider topic usually mm-hmm. um and so i grew up of that being a very normal topic and then i i i i, I built many things when i was younger right i, I built a car and then i built uh, all kinds of robots. And then at some point, uh, I, I was doing this kind of science competition and built a bark beetle monitoring robot, actually, that you could put in forests and would predict bark, bark beetle populations. And that then almost already became a company. And back then I was 16, 17. And then uh, through that, I, I met another entrepreneur that basically invited me to join his venture while I was still in high school, which was a vertical farming business, a vertical farming company, which was really, really cool. So like this is kind of even before I started studying, I did the first company and it actually went quite well. It was a very cool time, learned a lot. Um, and then while I started studying, I only started studying industrial engineering for like two semesters and then built a lot of apps while doing so. And then also got really excited about physics and then started studying that too. And then it was a little bit too much to like also still do startups. But um, so then I went all in on physics basically for two years, three years. Um, but yeah, it was always kind of the default to do that at some point. Right. And, you know, talk about your university days. What was valuable about your time at university and what was not? I have so much to talk here, honestly, because it's um, so... Essentially, I I touched three degrees um, quite deeply and at like very different uh, from very different perspectives. So I did industrial engineering, and then uh, so that means you have you have business, and then you have mechanical engineering, and then I went much deeper in mechanical engineering because I also wanted to do a bachelor of mechanical engineering, which is yet another story. Mm-hmm. But um, so basically, I did all the all the fundamental lectures on business in Germany back then. And and then at the same time, also, of course, physics and then also physics in Germany and physics in the United States and then also physics at university and physics at, at Max Planck, which is a research institute. So like many different environments, all somewhat um, connected to university, but all of them have been very different. And I think um, physics for me was by far the most useful experience itself. Right, like because um, if I if I reflect on what did I learn there, it's just like thinking. To be honest, like structured thinking, and you do this every day, and you do it for like many many hours a day, and you just solve really, really hard problems. And um, during physics research, I think the big biggest thing I took away was the paper I published. Actually, was two years. So the paper I published today took took us two years to to write and it was like this huge ambitious project and I remember back then when I went into this project it was like basically hitting a wall because I it's like the thing about theoretical physics it's like the stuff is so complicated at least if you begin with it that it's you just literally you don't understand what you're even reading and that's a mm-hmm. and that's a experience you have 
quite rarely, right? Like, so in mechanical engineering or business, that's never an experience I had. It's like, you just usually you read it, you understand it, and then you repeat it and you get better at it. But theoretical physics for me was so complicated that it's like you almost hit a mental wall and you just for weeks, you just sit in front of those few pages and you try to understand the math and you get better at it. Um, and then you start building a huge project out of it and you take step by step by step. So I think I learned a lot from my professor. It's like actually from if, if I would reflect who are the people I learned the most in my career, it's actually my my professor at Max Planck because he's like he was so um, diligently so kind of structured in his thinking process and um, I don't know it was just very very inspiring to spend time with him. So this this I think was my main takeaway and then but then also one one other funny part was one of my first business lectures took me from um, mechanical to software engineering because there was this uh, there was this lecture IT and e-business and basically it just told like all of those entrepreneurial stories of like founders in Germany and the US and, and Silicon Valley and, and and so on and so forth and I always, I was doing mostly mechanical stuff. So the thing I built when I was in high school were like all robots and, and et cetera, et cetera. So like I always wanted to build also companies in that space. But um, that lecture actually showed me the crazy upside and, and, and kind of the, the fast iteration cycles you get with software. So I, I went much deeper into software back then. So this was like a very long and diffuse answer, but there's like so much to talk here. No, I mean... Clearly, university shaped you in so many different ways, and you took away a lot of different things from your time at university. So that's fantastic. It was a, it was an amazing time. And, and then in, in 2020, you actually co-founded WorldCoin. And before you did that, how did you actually initially first get into crypto, basically? I did not. I did not at all, actually. So I was in... Um, so back then, I was still doing the research and this was back then only research so no lectures anymore it was kind of you do this phase in between your masters and and phd where you just wrap up things usually and kind of um so i was at caltech in los angeles up in pasadena which is a beautiful area and uh so i was just literally doing physics all day this was what i, what I did and um then i got this email from Max Novenstern, which was the third co-founder back then of, of Rockcoin. And he just sent me like a one pager and said, Hey, uh, here's this, I'm, I'm working on this new company with, with Sam and we tried to do this ambitious thing with crypto. And back then crypto was in a total bear market. So as of today, so today is November 15th. And, uh, as to reflect on listeners last week, there was like a huge crash in crypto because the FTX exchange crashed. And so like people say there's a bear market in crypto, but that's not even close to what, uh, where crypto was when I started working on it. Because back then I remember when I went to Silicon Valley and we talked to people, everyone was just like, yeah, crypto's dead. What are you even doing in that space? And it's on, only about Bitcoin and Ethereum and nothing else there matters. So I was not in crypto and I just got this email from, from Max and I drove up to San Francisco and met Max and then had an interview with Sam and then basically over many weeks. So they all, they already started working on it since six or seven months. So they already had some head start. And so, and I was still deciding, should I do that or not? I had other job offers that were like much more um, 
well, I don't know, quantum computing and, and stuff like that. So much more um, within the things I knew and, and also much higher paying and et cetera, et cetera. So um, I, I was thinking about it. And so I basically just started reading all the books about crypto and all the, all the kind of fundamental literature on crypto and all that stuff they basically sent me. So this was like a whole process of two months of just sitting in a library and reading everything, learning everything and trying to understand what is actually going on. And does this even make any sense? Mm -hmm. To be fair, when I started then working on it, I still did not know if this make it makes any sense. I was just like, at some point you just need to do a leap of faith because even in eight weeks, you're not able to figure uh, something like that out. And uh, so, yeah, then I took the, the leap of faith and uh, one of my, best friends and part of the founding team, Sandro, was with me at Caltech, also a physicist, and then he joined too. And then um, three of my other closest friends also joined from Germany back then. We had, before that, we had like an AI research company next to our studies. So all of those people joined and we started working on it. Amazing story. What actually gave you the push to say, this is not my field of expertise. I did like a boot camp, a crash course by re reading all the literature. But what initially then gave you the push to say, that's what I want to focus on for the next years probably to come? A few things. So one is, um, one is certainly Sam itself was like a big, mm -hmm. a, a big piece of it because it was like, okay, there's certainly a lot to learn here. There's a lot of, patterns you can learn by just like working with some of the best entrepreneurs of our time, uh, which I think he clearly is. So this was that that certainly was one big push of it. And the other big push was, um, I remember back then when, when Sam took a walk with me, he basically told me something along the lines of, Hey, like, if it works, it's obviously going to be a huge technological shift. If it doesn't work, uh, we will just like we basically took a lot of money of Silicon Valley and distributed with the world in like a very interesting and cool way. And this is like, it, it, we, we, at least we did something meaningful. And so basically back then I decided for myself, like I have no idea where this is going. I have no idea if this makes any sense, but um, it seems like even the worst case will make me sleep like a baby in the years after. And so I was looking at a crazy adventure and... Uh, and decided for myself that it's probably worth a try. Um, and, and yeah, and, oh, and then one more actually, which is an, a very interesting point. There's this, uh, there's this article by Paul Graham. Paul Graham is like one of the founders of, of Y Combinator, which is like in San Francisco, it's like one of the star biggest startup incubators. And so since I was, I don't know, 16 or 17, I was reading all of his blog posts and one of them uh, one of them talks about startup ideas and kind of what are the best startup ideas. And the point is basically that the best startup ideas sound absolutely ridiculous, but you can, you, you, if, you, if you think through them structurally and, and point by point, you can actually think of a path of all of this working out and making a lot of sense. And this, all of this was the case for me for this idea. I was like, I was, I was looking at this idea. I was like, okay, this is actually, this sounds crazy. This sounds so out there, but I can write down on a piece of paper all the things that need to be the case for this to work. And so I was like, all right, probably it always feels like that if you start something like that, right? Is Does it feel like a, a done deal when you start Airbnb? Probably doesn't, 
right? It's like, in fact, they, they had a, a huge struggle for the first two years. Um, so that's, that's the whole reflection of like, what are actually good startup ideas? Because probably it's not the ones that sound super obvious, right? Because otherwise they would already be out there. Yeah, exactly. I, I like this point that you just said. It sounds like a very simple idea, but then when you actually add everything together, it, it all makes sense. You can lay, lay out what needs to be fulfilled in actually to make it a success. So I do want to deconstruct that a bit by going into more detail. So Rollcoin basically wants to give a free coin to everyone on earth. That's a very bold vision. So really, you know, talking about going big or going home, how do people yeah. actually sign up for Rollcoin? So there's like a few a few parts to that. And um, I'm going to start actually where the idea came from and mm -hmm. kind of what was the what was kind of the root cause of it. And so back then we started when when kind of this whole thing started again crypto was in a in a dark phase and people did not believe there's actually any value and which they actually might do again this week but um <laughs> you, you get you get the point they at least did not do this for the last two years and um so so crypto was very early but somewhat it was also clear that it's there to stay and it, something will happen with it but it's it was a very very small industry and still is in terms of just user numbers, right? So you have, back then it was around 50 million. Uh, at this point, you can probably make the argument that somewhere between 100 to 200 million people in crypto. Uh, but if you still, if you like, if you're still a little bit more um, kind of clear on who is actually using something, you're still like below 100 million. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's still very, very small. And so Sam was just coming from the idea that, okay, clearly something is here. The technology itself will be transform transformative, um, but it did not land yet. And on the other hand, it all seems to be about network effects, right? So this is like this. Everyone in Silicon Valley always talks about network effects at every dinner. Like it's the favorite topic of people here. But there's <laughs> there, there, there's a big there's a big truth to that in that sense that um, that's also the case with a financial network. Obviously, if you're able to bootstrap a large one. The larger it gets, the more useful it gets. And it's important that it gets more useful non-linearly. So you have some super linear function that increases faster than, than just a linear function over time. I'm mm -hmm. sorry, I'm like always, I always use those mathematical terms and realize that people might be confused by that. But um, So you have a super linear function over the number of users and there's many discussions what that would be, but it's clear that if you become the largest network, you probably uh, you c probably become extremely valuable, and you solve you you will be able to solve many many problems. In that case, actually, make crypto very useful. And so, Sam's simple idea back then was: all right, what would happen? Like, what if the big insight of crypto or Web three is actually this idea of ownership participation? So that you you create a network and you give ownership in that network to your users and therefore all the value that gets created in, through the network is not only shared with founders or the company, but with all of its users. So what if that is the fundamental idea? And so that leads you to the extreme of like, okay, let's just start a new network by giving ownership in it to every user we onboard and let's push that as far as we can and let's push for billions of people. And so this was like the, the founding principle of the company is like, okay, we we launch a new network and we give ownership in the network to all of our users and we, we clearly aim at billions and scale first. So we scale as quickly as we can in every regard. And um, 
he then also came from that part that he thinks AI is changing the world much faster than people realize and kind of actually participating everyone in the global economy will become exponentially more important over time, right? Because um, we actually, like right now we go through, I believe we, we go through a revolution that is much bigger than the industrial revolution and it will transform our industry much more than people realize right now. And seeing that from the inside, seeing that within OpenAI and like all those companies here is actually, it's crazy. So he approached it from that angle too. It's like, we need to, we need to get everyone participated and then try things like UBI in the future, maybe. So this was like, this was the, this was the idea. And so if you would state the mission back then, it would be something like, okay, participate everyone in the global economy as fast as we possibly can, because it will be critical to all of us and um, do that by giving out ownership in the network through a token to all of its users. Mm -hmm. However, then we realized that the biggest problem to solve as a first step in that direction is identity. So how do you issue everyone, no matter where they come from, an equal identity that is fully pseudonymous and privacy preserving? And the only way to do that we found back then, and still is the case, is biometrics. And that's why we built our own biometric device that basically issues you privacy-preserving proof of personal. So meaning you can prove to the network that you are actually a unique human being without revealing who you actually are, which is a very powerful That's notion. quite mind-blowing if you think about it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. So um, that was like a, a short rant of um, how it came together. Yeah. And, and, and why is that actually so important to then make an equal distribution in, in a, as a second step? So... It's, it's actually important if you want to make any distribution with any financial incentive, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you would not do that, so if you, so, okay, so let's assume you don't solve that problem, then you will yeah. still have an easy run in Europe and United States, probably. Like you, you probably are able to do that in most European countries, actually not in all of them, but in most and in the United States, um, that could already be a huge payout for you as a founder financially, because there's many people there. Um, however, if you want to take it to the actual extreme and you want to be as inclusive as you possibly can, it also needs to work in places like Africa or Indonesia or uh, like it actually should work for everyone. It should work from Norway to Indonesia. And right. so then you cannot rely on, on government infrastructure um, for such an important infrastructural piece because um, let's assume... we. we we're actually getting close to token launch. So let's assume we, we launch a token. The token gets a substantial market cap, meaning there's a lot of value in the token. And if you basically attack the system uh, and you can create multiple identities, and let's say we would not have solved that problem, you as a bot or as an attacker, you can get a lot of money for free, right? And so right. the incentive to attack the system is really, really high. And the infrastructure for identity is really, really bad in, in actually for most of the people in the world, actually. So it would be quite easy for them to trick us, and uh, meaning the whole system would probably break down. And in fact, there is many examples from the early days of crypto where people did hundreds of millions of dollars of airdrops with that same theory of, okay, we want to create a large network as quickly as possible, but it failed exactly for that reason. Even in the United States, because just people attacked the system, um, either through identities or the service itself, and just created so many accounts that the whole system broke down. So in, in that case, you're really solving a very, very big problem 
the proof of personhood yes. without having to reveal your identity, as you said before. Yes, exactly. And, and the thing is, uh, it's pretty funny. We, over time, our early investors were just like those crypto, uh, the very crypto hardcore believers. Uh, back then, there was one, one partner at Andreessen Horowitz, Chris Dixon, which I'm a huge fan of. But later, in the last round, there's many of those, generally, they're concerned about AI risk. And so, and that happens because all of those language models, GPT-3 and all of those things, they start showing you that in the not too distant future, you will interact on the internet and you will have no idea that you interact with a human or you interact with an, with an actual bot, an AI, right? Because right now we are GPT-3 uh, with an open AI. So for people that don't know that open AI is a research lab in San Francisco that is also started by, by Sam, my co-founder and, uh, they create basically AI systems, and one of them is GPT-3. It's a language model, so you basically type what should it say or what is your question, and, and the model tells, kind of just re starts responding to you. And it already does that in a really, really tricky way. It's like it's really hard to understand, is this now a machine or is this a, is this a human being? And uh, GPT-4, as a disclaimer, is much, much crazier. And that's only one year later, right? So relatively soon, you might be in a Telegram chat and you might totally talk to an AI and you just have no idea that that's actually the case. So this whole notion of proof of personhood uh, now becomes much more essential even just through that development too. Right. And you said before you, you want to be independent from like government infrastructure, etc. However, you, you probably do need access to a smartphone or a computer to actually be able to participate or have you know your your tokens in in Worldcoin, which many people in the world of the geographies that you mentioned still do not really have. How do you plan to solve this problem? Because that's another big one to you know to solve or to tackle. Yeah, I mean, we actually we will start investing now some resources, and I think in the next twelve months, a lot of resources into that problem because fundamentally we don't rely on that. It's just like. Like, for example, a good example is in, in Nairobi, Kenya, mm -hmm. um, or in Kenya more broadly, there's a, a payment payment rail called M-Pesa, which is actually, it's, it's quite known to many people in industry because it's like, it's a crazy case of a whole country suddenly shifting to digital payments. Um, however, that is controlled by one company, Safaricom, and they charge a lot of money. They charge like... Eight dollars, uh, sorry, eight percent, uh, up to sometimes even over ten percent, depending on where you are and how much you pay. Crazy. And they do that through SMS, right? So, like, you can also use it with you can also use it with um, uh, with your smartphone, but also they offer it for feature phones and SMS and and etc. Right? So that's then like that's one more extreme. So right now it's just like our app is very slim and it works for like many many different phones and it's very backward compatible. Obviously, we're not there yet. It's like a lot of work and we were also a startup. We have limited resources. But the, the short answer being is like we just work our way back to kind of the the least technology requirements um, for, for the whole system to work. Um, I think if you don't have any phone, not even a, a kind of a phone with SMS, then it's going to be challenging because the whole mm -hmm. thing is obviously digital. So it's it's hard to interact with it through paper but um but i think that that already gives us way more coverage fair point and now assume that i actually have my world coin what will i be able to do with it 
So the basically the, the, the Rollcoin token itself is actually it gives you ownership of the network itself, right? So mm-hmm. and the, so if you zoom out and you look over Rollcoin from, from top to bottom, then there's already many products that actually will create a lot of economic value. And some of them already do. So there is Rolled ID, which is uh, which basically is, is kind of this identity part that we solve through biometrics. And that is also an open SDK. Uh, so as a developer, you can basically integrate with that and use it for your app. If you want this proof of person node or you want this other identity protocol that's attached to that. And in the future, like it's actually unclear when this will ship because we don't want to do it for a long time. But at some point, uh, as a developer, you will have to pay fees in the Rollcoin token to just use that infrastructure, right? Because the whole network, it costs money to operate it. And so it's, it's just fair if you use it as a developer that you pay for it. So it's one piece of it. Then we have an, an app, a wallet, which is a non-custodial crypto wallet, meaning the whole thing that happened with FDX cannot happen to it because it's just uh, purely based on smart contracts and math. So um, you can you can buy other tokens there. You can buy stable coins. You can... You can buy Rollcoin, not yet, but when, whenever it launched, or Bitcoin, whatever you want. You can send it to your friends. Uh, and we, we also will start working on something like, like lending, lending products based on DeFi, etc. So all of those things are coming. And again, that product will create a lot of economic value and already is. And uh, again, here we, we will all also capture fees at some point in the future through Rollcoin, right? So meaning user user, you basically you get ownership in the network and the network starts growing, gets more and more useful, more utility. And because basically because you join, because you also give the network something, it's basically you're you're becoming a network node and you basically get participation in in the utility and the upside of the network itself. So that's the first mental model of the token. It's basically it's this to be fair, it's like a very Web three encryptor thing, but it gives you ownership in the network itself. So, what it will what will happen to the token when it actually gets to scale? We have some ideas, but it's very hard to predict because there's just nothing like that. Because a token is not just like a currency in that sense. You have like uh, I, I give you one token or yet another token, but it's based on Ethereum, so you can actually interface with it with smart contracts. So it might totally happen in many markets we operate in that this might become just a default digital online currency that interacts with smart contracts whenever you use it. Absolutely. And you so also briefly talked... I guess this yeah. was like a way complicated, very more complicated answer than you hoped for. But um, No, it's totally fine. I, I see the potential more and more now yeah. by talking to you. And you also mentioned that there are fees that you might take for the transactions, etc. Can you talk a bit more about your business model? Because in the end... You're also a startup and you have investors and obviously also need to make some form of money to survive as a company. Yeah, so we are structured as I think every crypto over three project should be structured in that sense that um, you, well, there's, there's also equity in a company, but the big thing that we have and investors have is, is the token as, as you as a user have too. Right. So when the token is launched, which is again, it's not yet. So kind of investors can buy this token in the future. Um, and the network gains utility, the token will reflect that. Right. So that, that's mm-hmm. the only way we make money. So also 
for example, we could take those fees and we could wire them to a private company, let's say, and that would be horrible, right? But that, that would yeah. be a much more direct business model. But what we actually do is when those fee, switch, fee switches get engaged, they interact with the whole network. So there's like for, there, there will be a burning mechanism or something like that for the network itself. Mm-hmm. So meaning the whole network gets lifted up and because the whole network gets lifted up, we also participate in that. So there's no actual direct business model like through any of that, but it's all through that token, which gives us ownership in the network. And that sounds like a very well aligned incentive structure that you all are in there for the long run for a more valuable token. Correct. That's that's the that's the main reason. And it, trust me, it was really really hard to do that because many investors believe that's a horrible idea. Obviously, so um, we had many many discussions around that and many bylaws and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, to just make that happen and make that work. And you also talked about network effects, right, as a crucial part of your path to success, basically. And in the end, you you probably need the masses, right? You need the volume to establish Rollcoin to then also not only drive the token price, but really to have adoption and have people using and interacting with your token, your platform, basically. How do you plan to get them on board? Because that's probably one of the biggest challenges, despite the many technical challenges and the logic challenges behind it with the incentives, to get users to actually use the token and get to a certain critical mass to then let the network effects kicking in. So this is ob- this is the crux of the problem, as you can imagine, and it's yeah. uh, it's in our case like exponentially more complicated because we want to be uh, in many places in the world all at once, right? Like if you focus on let's say one market, let's say we would only go to Nairobi, and we have that app in Nairobi, and we have the token in Nairobi, and we have the identity in Nairobi, then it gets quite you can actually start focusing on okay what what payment products would be useful in that market and what what identity provider do we want to integrate with et cetera et cetera like it it gets way less complicated however we just given the mission of the project we want to be global so that means that we have um multiple feature teams and it's like actually like for the next quarter uh we will go much much deeper in four markets so meaning I will live in one market, our head of product will live in another, and uh, yet two other people will live in, in yet another market, and like we will actually start building teams locally on the ground. Mm-hmm. And the big focus for the, for the first scaling phase, which we think is below 5, 5% local penetration, so you have a total addressable market, and you are below 5% of that in that market. Uh, in Nairobi, we are already at 4.9, so we quickly will go into kind of phase two, which is then we think up to 20. And uh, so we go in, in these markets and we basically, you can think of the, the wallet as a, as a cable bundle. It's, it's like actually someone in my team told me this over the weekend. I really like the analogy. It's like it's a cable bundle. It, there's financial services in there. And like for every market, there's two or three things that really matter a lot for the people there. It might be sports, it might be news. And for a wallet, it's it's uh, kind of on-ramp to crypto, or it might be dollar access through stable coins in in countries with hyperinflation, right? So there's like there's always those two three things that are actually are killer, and people really want in that market. And then there's like ten other things we can build, and probably will make it cooler and more fun. And so we have a map of this in every market we're in. We're like, we understand what are the three killer things that we actually have to build and what are the 10 other things that might just be fun and cool. 
And uh, so that that's how you basically do that. You go in there and you parachute product teams in those markets. You build those products and then you have a lot of metrics that tell you, do you start seeing the first network effects? Yes or no. And yeah. if you if yes, if you start hitting them, which I think we are already there in some markets, then you can start expanding to, to more and more. Right. And you're also big advantage there is you mentioned the fee structure, right, of the existing solutions out there, which are enormous, like eight, 10, maybe even 11 or 12% fees on these transactions. That's huge. And you will probably be significantly lower due to the efficiency of your network and your setup. Yes, correct. It's, um, I mean, that, that problem specifically is, is the case in, uh, in Nairobi. Like it's a huge okay. topic there. And it's, it's very cool, right? Because in Nairobi, for example, we are in every, in every major university. So I think another important point for the listeners, like we're still testing so that the whole system is not live yet. Uh, so we're going to launch, um, actually quite soon in the coming months, but, um, so in Nairobi, we are in every major technical university. And if you talk to students there, all of them know what crypto is and all of them are excited about it because it actually solves a lot of problems for them on the ground. Like it actually gives them hope of, okay, we can build a better infrastructure, a better system that is not only based on one one entity, one private entity that takes a lot of uh, money. And so it's, that's, that's cool about the market. Yeah, right. And then you have a natural pull, basically, instead of having to push into the market. Yep. Correct. Very powerful. So when will you actually launch? You said you're currently testing. What is your plan to launch? So the the thing I can say is we are in in actually in seven days, November twenty first. Uh in November twenty first we have a huge internal milestone, which is mainnet readiness. So that means that all of our systems are technically on green. So mm -hmm. product, engineering, all of those things are would be ready to scale drastically and uh, we now also have many of those devices uh, uh, manufactured and built so we, we would actually be ready to scale and, and go the only big thing that is still missing is marketing and, and communications so we mm -hmm. we are still quite stealthy you're the only podcast I talked to in quite a while and many people asked me to show up so it's like I'm still very stealthy and we, we don't really talk much so this is the, the last big zero to one we have to take is um, kind of actually marketing, comms, messaging, all the stuff. And yeah. once that is the case, um, so we're just assembling the team for this whole project. Um, we will we will launch. But the thing is, uh, it's actually quite dependent on, as you can imagine, a macro environment. So yeah. I, I was hoping that, like at this time, I could just announce like a firm date and say, okay, we were ready to go um, mm -hmm. because we actually are as a company. But uh, like right now, it's it's much more defined by external factors than internal factors to some degree. Yeah. Does that also frustrate you to a certain degree? Because your company is ready. You, you worked really hard to get to that readiness, but now the market timing is just bad. Is that also a bit frustrating on a personal level that you cannot like go at full speed right now? So there's there's a few parts about it are frustrating, others are not. And so okay. what is frustrating about it is like Keith Rabo is, which is like another... It's, it's a well-known investor in Silicon Valley. He always says like capital is like is like oxy oxygen, right? And so, so at, at times where capital is cheap, you can like you can just like run always. You can sprint and brief as much as you need. 
And uh, in the current environment, you definitely cannot breathe as much as you need. So meaning uh, it's not clever right now to just scale brutally as fast as possible. And capital is just not as cheap. And it, uh, I remember <laughs> when we raised our Series B, uh, which is, by the way, it's like, I think the, the worst thing I did ever as a CEO. Um, I would never do this again, but we had $300 million in commitments so people like three hundred million, three hundred million people, uh, three hundred million dollars of just investors that just wanted to invest the company and money urgently as much like as fast as possible, and people spamming my inbox and all those things. And um, back then, I only took a hundred because I was like, yeah, like whatever. We are making so much progress. We don't need more right now. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, right now it's not as easy anymore to raise another three hundred million dollars because just um, funds are hit hard. Um, the, the kind of interest rates are high, et cetera, et cetera. So this is, this is the annoying piece is like, um, that now you actually need to be cautious of like how fast to run. And that's, um, that's annoying. Mm -hmm. The general market environment, I think is actually quite good for us because, um, the most dangerous situation, if you launch a token is that you basically see an, a strong initial spike and then it drops off. Because then what, what basically happened is um, a lot of retail investors invested in the project are excited about it and then lose money in it. And looking backward, if we would have launched the project until now, that would have happened 100%, right? Because it was like sure. the last two years were like a very weird time with zero interest rates and just markets pumping wildly. So if we would have launched a token there, now the, the price would certainly be down probably 70% or so, mm -hmm. uh, or 60%. And uh, it's much, much better for us to launch in a down market, s slowly start building and, and kind of actually grow the network, get better and better, and then take the next rise and in, like interest in crypto and markets picking up again, because it's like, that's this, this good upward trajectory that you want for a project like yes. that versus like a huge pump and dump. Yeah. So like that, that part I'm yeah. that, that part I'm really happy about actually. I think that's really good. So for the long term, you know, health of Worldcoin, that's actually a very good thing right now in, in despite all the turbulences in the market, that's the perfect starting point. So now if we fast forward a bit and we say the launch happened, what can we expect from Worldcoin post launch? So, well, a few things. Uh first a lot a lot of public attention. Uh, in, in the good and the bad. Uh, it's, mm -hmm. it's like generally we always underestimated how high the interest for this project is just given Sam as a co-founder and like the, the nature of the project itself and all of those investors we have. And, and, and so that's why we actually lay low more than I usually would as a founder because uh, whenever I say, say something, everyone is listening and that's actually quite stressful if you just want to build and you like you you're still a startup like no matter who's your co-founder and 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 which investors you have you still have to build products and you still have to build stuff and you did not figure anything everything out already from day one so that's uh that that will change because at some point then you are a public company and you have to uh, you have to explain what you what you do, and in our case, it actually is a decentralized project versus a company, meaning um, we have to build an ecosystem and we have to get developers excited about it and 
and so on and so forth. So that that's one big piece is like communication will dramatically ramp up. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other big thing is uh, for us internally, it's just all about scale. Scale as quickly as we can, as fast as we can in those markets and, and kind of grow, grow the network. Um, that's the other thing. I hope you will see a lot of exciting numbers um, uh, every week. We certainly stay tuned for that, definitely. So Alex, to wrap up today's conversation, I also have some rapid fire questions for you. I either give you different options to choose from or a simple question and you have to answer in one sentence. You ready? Yes. Let's go. In I have three... to answer in one sentence, you're saying? Ideally, yeah. Ideally. Okay. Let's see. Right. <laughs> in a pre-world coin world, what was your cryptocurrency of choice? Bitcoin. What does money mean to you? Freedom. Mm-hmm. When were you last surprised? Last week about the collapse of FTX. Yeah, yeah, good example. Money or purpose? Purpose. How many hours of sleep did you get last night? Six hours and 37 minutes. Oh, you ch- you checked record. your aura ring or your eight sleep? <laughs> yes, 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 <laughs> aura ring. Um, complete the sentence. Worldcoin is key to... Economic empowerment for billions of people. Nice. And the last one, Germany or the United States? United States. Fair point. Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure talking to you. We are super excited to see what you're building with Rollcoin and lots of success and all the best for the future. Thank you so much for having me, Sylvan. This was a lot of fun and I wish you all the best too. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.